I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we seek the things of life in the pages of the Bible in order to help us to better conform ourselves to the image of God. Well, here we are. We have made it. We have, over the last three years, covered the entire Torah from Genesis 1-1 all the way until today, the last chapters of Deuteronomy. 143 lessons and stops, and each of them is available for you to listen here on this podcast. This journey has been quite epic in my own estimation. Now, I know that I personally, I have grown through this study of the Torah, and I pray that I have been able to pass some small portion of that on to you. Because if we are not learning, if you are not learning from these things, all that I have been doing has been pointless. Regardless, after this lesson, I will be going on a one-year teaching hiatus. Frankly, I need a break. I need a time where I can incorporate much of what I've learned over the last few years and begin to use it more and apply it more deeply into my own life. I'm going to be the first to admit, new ideas, new ways of thinking and walking, they do take time to implement and to learn, and I have found myself at times not quite living up to the standard that I'm teaching. And so, for the next year, we're going to do things a little bit differently here on the podcast, something that I will explain in an upcoming episode once we're done with everything. But uh, I think you're going to like it. I know of at least one listener that I've talked to about this that is going to be really excited about what's coming up. Um, but we will introduce that, if not next week, then in four weeks after I get through a series of other teachings that um, I'm going to do here at the end. But I don't know about you, but this process, it truly has blessed me. And so I thank each of you for allowing me to share my findings as I have studied this Torah for myself. Now, last week in my intro, we went through a review of sorts for the entire Torah. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, I have been providing constant reminders of the structure and the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy. But here at the end, I want to stop for a moment and I want to take a look at the man Moses. This man who was called to take up the role of leader of Israel, even though he felt woefully equipped to do so. This man who entered into the thankless task of leading a people who didn't want to be led. Guiding people away from gods that they did not want to give up. Showing people the proper way as revealed by God, and then having them despise him and even attempt to kill him for it. A man who after his death was praised to the heavens and recognized as a great man but who during his life was beset by every suspicion and accusation that the hearts of men could devise. And it is this that we catch a glimpse of, something that is absolutely profound. Back in Deuteronomy 19, we read of a promise that would one day come. Back at Sinai, the people had asked for a man to speak to them the words of God, and for the moment, 
That man was Moses. But then Deuteronomy 19, God promises that another man will one day come who will be like Moses and who will teach Israel what Hashem desires for them. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 19. Hashem your God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brothers. Listen to him. According to all that you asked of Hashem your God at Chorav in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Hashem my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And Hashem said to me, What they have spoken is good. I shall raise up for them a prophet like you out of the midst of their brothers, and I shall put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be the man who does not listen to my word which he speaks in my name, I require it of him. And when we were in Deuteronomy 19, we spoke for a bit on the identity of this person, this prophet that would one day come and speak the words of Hashem, and that he will hold his people to. And in our discussion, I mentioned that most Christians and Messianics, as well as myself, we hold to the idea that Yeshua was the fulfillment of this prophecy of the prophet like Moses. But the question arises, how can we be sure of this? How can we know for sure that he was the one? Or should we, like the Jews, be looking for another? Well, we have only to look and see if Yeshua was like Moses. And the fact is that on a simple examination of the lives of both Moses and Yeshua, there are around 100 different ways that Yeshua and Moses were alike. They both fasted for 40 days as part of their ministry. They both were chosen by God to redeem his people from a great and oppressive enemy. We're going to read this week that Moses was a king in Israel, and so too Yeshua is a king in Israel. They both had shining skin while on a mountain and concealed by a cloud. They both revealed a deeper truth of the Passover. They were both hated by the powers that be. They both led a series of twelve. They were both betrayed by some close to them. They were both threatened with stoning by the people that they were called to lead, and they both escaped that stoning. And the list goes on and on. Moses is truly an archetype of the perfection of Yeshua. But the comparison, it goes beyond just these types of comparisons. They both taught with authority, not as philosophers or modern teachers or scribes who always hedge their bets or call on men smarter and more studied than themselves to shore up their teachings. They both taught as men who had been granted the authority to teach by God himself. Both acted in authority and they commanded others to accomplish their will. We see this New Testament in several places, Mark 1, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as possessing authority and not as the scribes. Mark 1, 27, and they were all so amazed as to reason among themselves, saying, What is this, a fresh teaching? With authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Matthew seven twenty eight through 29 it came to be when Yeshua had ended these words that the people were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one possessing authority, and not as the scribes. And when we pull on this thread, we discover that Moses and Yeshua were alike in more than just many of the circumstances of their lives. They were alike in their authority over Israel. They were alike in their authority over elements such as weather and water. They were both kings in Israel as well as prophets but neither were officially priests, even though they both offered up a sacrifice of atonement, 
in an office that was greater than the office of priest and Levite. And this week, we will read of the death of Moses. Twice, in fact. And nestled between these two accounts of Moses' death is the final blessing that Moses gives to the sons of Israel. And so let's open up to the last two and a bit chapters and finish our examination of this man who was the clearest foreshadow of our Messiah. Deuteronomy 32:48 through 34:12. And Hashem spoke to Moshe that same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the Avrim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, which is opposite Jericho, and look on the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me in the midst of the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not set me apart in the midst of the children of Israel. For you are to look on the land before you, but not enter there, into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. And this is the blessing which Moshe the man of Elohim blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, Hashem came from Sinai and rose from Seir for them. He shone forth from Mount Paran and came with ten thousand of his holy ones at his right hand, a law of fire for them. Indeed, he loves the peoples, all his holy ones are in your hand. And they, they sat down at your feet, receiving your words. Moshe commanded us a Torah, an inheritance of the assembly of Yaakov. And he was king in Yasharun, when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel. Let Reuven live and not die, and let his men be numbered. And this of Yehuda. And he said, Hear Hashem, the voice of Yehuda, and bring him to his people. His hands shall fight for him, and you be a help against his enemies. And of Levi he said, Your Tumim and your Urim belong to your lovingly committed one, whom you tried at Massah, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I have not seen them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers, or know his own children, for they have guarded your word and watched over your covenant. They teach your judgments to Yaakov and your Torah to Israel. They put incense before you and a complete ascending offering on your altar. O Hashem, bless his strength and accept the work of his hands. Smite the loins of those who rise against him, and of those who hate him, that they rise no more. Of Benjamin he said, Let the beloved of Hashem dwell in safety by him, shielding him all the day, as he dwells between his shoulders. And of Yosef he said, Blessed of Hashem is his land, blessed of Hashem is his land, with the choicest from the heavens with the dew, and with deep lying beneath and with the choice fruits of the sun, with the choice yield of the months, with the finest of the ancient mountains, with the choicest of everlasting hills, with the choicest of the earth and all that fills it, and the good pleasure of him who dwelt in the bush. Let it come on the head of Yosef, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His splendor is like a firstborn bull, and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. With them he pushes the peoples to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousand of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, O Zebulun, in your going out, and Yissachar in your tents. They call the peoples to the mountain, and there they slaughter sacrifices of righteousness, for they draw from the riches of the seas and treasures hidden in the sand. And of God he said, Blessed is he who enlarges God. He dwells as a lion, and shall tear off the arm also the crown. And he chose the best for himself, 
for there the portion of the inscriber was hidden, and he came with the heads of the people. The righteousness of Hashem he did, and his judgment with Israel. And of Dan he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from the Bashan. And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with pleasure and filled with the blessing of Hashem, possess the west and the south. And of Asher he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be accepted by his brothers and dip his foot in oil. Your sandals are iron and bronze and your strength as your days. O Yasharun, there is no one like God, riding the heavens to help you, and on the clouds in his excellency. The God of old is a refuge, and beneath are everlasting arms. And he drives out the enemy from before you and says, Destroy. Thus Israel dwells in safety, the fountains of Jacob alone, in a land of grain and new wine, his heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Hashem, the shield of your help, and he who is the sword of your excellency, and your enemies are subdued for you, and you tread down their high places. And Moshe went up from the desert plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And Hashem showed him all the lands of Gilad as far as Dan, and all Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea and the Negev, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees, as far as Zoar. And Hashem said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Avraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, saying, To your seed I give it. I have let you look at it with your eyes, but you do not pass over there. And Moshe, the servant of Hashem, died there in the land of Moab, according to the mouth of Hashem. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, and no one knows of his burial place to this day. Amoshe was one hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his freshness gone. And the children of Israel wept for Moshe in the desert plains of Moab thirty days. And the days of weeping and mourning for Moshe were completed. And Yehoshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moshe had laid his hands on him. And the children of Israel listened to him and did as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And since then no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moshe, whom Hashem knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which Hashem sent to him to do in the land of Mitzrayim before Pharaoh and before all his servants and in all his land, and for all that strong hand and all the great and fearsome deeds which Moshe did before the eyes of all Israel. There is in Judaism a tradition when one finishes a book of the Torah. There's a little saying that they say, that they tag on to the end of their Torah reading. Well, we haven't set it up to this point, but we're going to say it today here at the end of the Torah. Chazak, chazak, venit chazek. This is a phrase that means strength, strength, and be strengthened. It's calling to this idea of Joshua being strengthened by the word of Moses and applying it to our own lives, that we are to be strengthened by Moses' word. And that through the faith that the word of Moses that he wrote imparts, we can be strengthened as we move forward. So say it with me. It's the same word three times with a little connector in the middle. Chazak, chazak, venit, chazek. Well, at the end of Genesis, as Jacob, the man who had his name changed to Israel and who became the direct father of 12 sons, passed away. In the second to the last chapter of that book, we read of the blessings that Jacob spoke over his twelve sons. Declarations of what the future held for his sons. 
some on the receiving end of good outcomes and others on the receiving end of terrible outcomes, and yet the entire process being called the blessing. And if we turn back further still, we can examine the blessings that Isaac spoke over his sons of Jacob and Esau, again one receiving only blessing and the other receiving the opposite, but still considered a blessing. And in this chapter, Moses accomplishes the same thing. Now, the blessings are not spoken over twelve brothers, but rather the blessings are spoken over twelve rather large tribes. And there are some very interesting things that occur here in these blessings that we should examine. First off, let me ask you a question. How many tribes of Israel are there? Well, if we look to the Bible for the number of the tribes of Israel, we will end up with a total number of twelve. Every time that a number for the number of tribes is mentioned, that number is 12. But if we examine the times that the names of the tribes were recounted in any significant way, we find that there are some interesting things that happen. In the blessing with Jacob in Genesis 49 that we just spoke of, all 12 of Jacob's sons are mentioned, and each gets a blessing or a place in the order of blessing. But when we consider it, the tribe of Joseph was split in two by Jacob, and both of his sons were adopted by Jacob in the previous chapter of Genesis 48. And so the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh were added to the total number of Israel as a subset of Joseph. Add to this that the tribes of both Simeon and Levi had what seemed like a negative consequence spoken over them by Jacob. Genesis 49, 5-7 Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their weapons are implements of violence. Let my being not enter their counsel. Let my honor not be united to their assembly, because they killed a man in their displeasure, and they lamed an ox in pleasure. Cursed be their displeasure, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. And so we find that this works its way out into the count of Israel in other places, including this chapter. Because as we consider the tribes of Israel, there are 14 names that can be used to speak of the tribes of Israel. There are 13 tribes who stood at the base of Mount Sinai, because Ephraim and Manasseh were separate tribes at this point. But one tribe was absorbed by all of the other tribes after the events at Sinai. The tribe of Levi were separated from the others because of an act of faithfulness that we will speak on later. So when we read of the camping order around the tabernacle, or the order of movement of the tribes at the beginning of Numbers, there are still 12 tribes listed in those lists. But in that book, Levi is always treated differently than the rest. And it was Levi who was left out when the spies were sent into the land in Numbers 13. But there were still 12 representatives of the tribes sent, one from each tribe. And so when we get here, if we count the number of the tribes specifically blessed, how many do we find in this chapter? Well, there are 11. Or is it 13? Wait, what? Only 11? What's going on here? Well, if we pay close attention in verse 13, the tribe that is being blessed directly is the tribe of Joseph. But at the end of the blessing over Joseph, both Ephraim and Manasseh are called out and given their own portion of the blessing of Joseph, which if we count them, brings us to a total of 13. But there are a total of 14 names that can be used. No problem, you say, we can leave out Levi, just as the book of Numbers did, and we will arrive at the correct number. But guess what? Levi was not left out. 
they are one of the tribes that are accounted for here in this chapter. And this blessing levy was not left out. They were not treated any differently, as was the case of the previous countings of the tribes in the book of Numbers. But we're still missing one. So who is it? Well, if we remember back to the blessings of Genesis, two tribes were combined together in that blessing as well, Simeon and Levi. And while previously Levi was left out of the list because they were to be treated differently, in this list and with these blessings, Simeon is left out completely. Now, the reason for this is frankly unknown, but we can infer a reason through a bit of connecting dots and conjecture. And doing this will also teach us a bit of history that's useful to know, because these blessings from both Genesis and Deuteronomy used in conjunction can speak to the history of Israel that we do know. But these people on the east side of the Jordan, they would have had no concept of what was coming. Now, the blessing of Jacob over these brothers of Levi and Simeon spoke of both tribes being scattered throughout Israel. And if we examine what then happens, we find that this indeed comes to pass. Levi, we discover, had this fulfilled in their tribe when God set them apart as servants to him. Those whose inheritance was Hashem, who lived in cities scattered throughout the land of Israel on both the east and west sides of the Jordan, truly scattered throughout Israel, but in a way that brought honor to them. Not so with Simeon. Now, we don't hear much about Simeon and what happened to them as they drop off the map for the most part after the book of Judges. You see, the territory that Simeon inherited was a landlocked territory. Now, I don't mean that it was a territory that had no sea access, which of course it was, but this is not the only way that being landlocked plays out, at least the way that I'm using it here. The territory that Simeon was allotted by the casting of lots in the book of Joshua resulted in an inheritance that was completely surrounded by the tribe of Judah. The entirety of Simeon existed within the entirety of Judah, and it was Judah that had the borders not just with other tribes, but also with the Mediterranean and the entire west coast of the Dead Sea. But Simeon, Simeon was in trouble. There was little that Simeon could do to influence anyone or anything. They were cut off from their brothers in many ways. But they did not disappear completely. We discover in the books of Chronicles that Simeon sent 7,100 troops to support David as he secured the throne of Judah after the death of Saul in 1 Chronicles 12. And in the days of King Asa, we discover that while he was attempting to turn Judah back to Hashem, the men of Judah and Benjamin were called by the king to return and repent. And in the course of Second Chronicles 15, we read that Asa gathered together the Ger, the sojourners of Simeon, Manasseh, and Ephraim to participate in this repentance. Those who had come to live in the kingdom of Judah, and yet the tribal allotment of Simeon was fully inside the borders of Judah. And yet in Second Chronicles, they are called Ger. And in 2 Chronicles 34, King Josiah cleansed idolatry from all the cities of Judah and Jerusalem. And then it adds that he did the same in the ruins of the cities of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon as far north as Naphtali. The ruins of the cities of a lot of places outside the area of Judah. And Simeon is part of that list. 
And if we pay close attention throughout the Bible, cities that were ascribed to Simeon in the book of Joshua are later in history ascribed to the tribe of Judah. So what is it that occurred with Simeon? How did they go from a tribal inheritance to being Ger in Judah, to their cities belonging to Judah, or being ruins outside the area of Judah? And the easy answer is that they were absorbed into Judah and into the rest of Israel. Just as Levi was dispersed throughout Israel in a manner that brought them honor, so too Simeon was dispersed throughout Israel in a way that brought them shame. And we catch a glimpse of that in these blessings because Simeon is missing. They were left out. They were not counted among the tribes of Israel for the purpose of blessing by Moses for either good or evil. And there are some who speculate that this was because it was Simeon that was primarily responsible for the matter at Baal Peor, because it was Zimri, a chief of Simeon, that was killed by Phineas. And it's stated in Jewish tradition that the 24,000 that died in the plague that followed, they were either all or primarily from the tribe of Simeon. And so Simeon passes into legend and ceases to be a uniquely identifiable tribe before the Babylonian captivity. Or does he? In the book of Ezekiel, we read of the land allotments given to Israel at either a future time or a metaphor for something else. But when we read this at the end of Ezekiel, Simeon is represented in the listing of the 12 tribes in that book. Once again, Levi and Joseph, they're missing from the list for the reasons that I stated above. And in the book of Revelation, we read of the 144,000 that come from each tribe. And in this location, not only is Simeon listed, but Levi and Joseph are all listed as well. And yet there are still only 12 tribes listed. How is this possible? Well, while Joseph is listed, only Manasseh of his sons is present. Ephraim is missing, or rather is replaced with Joseph. And in the place of either Levi or Simeon, The tribe of Dan is missing from this list. And yet there are still 12 tribes listed. And from this we learn that Simeon is not abandoned forever. They are still a tribe and will continue to be a tribe, even though they were absorbed by the other tribes over the course of time. And even with this, it's theorized by some that when Judas Iscariot is described as a son of Simon, that this was simply a way of speaking of what tribe Judas came from as an indicator of his past and history and motivation. But again, this is only speculation. With other disciples, when they're called sons, such as sons of Zebedee, it's more likely that this actually was his father's name, Simon, Simeon. But the possibility does exist that it indicates his tribal affiliation. Now, in the list in Revelation, we catch another missing tribe, and that is the tribe of Dan. But this has been widely recognized, and it's a bit off topic, so that is something that you can track down in your own time if that's a topic that interests you. So returning to this final blessing of Moses over Israel, Simeon is missing, and that is significant. But for the sake of time, let's quickly go through these blessings and see what we can discern from them. Now, Reuben is only given the blessing that they will not be wiped out. (laughs) Whoop-dee, right? Again, this is significant, as Reuben was passed over for the firstborn blessing back in Genesis 49. But Reuben was also the tribe that supported Korah and the rebellion of Korah. It was Reuben that was one of the tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan as well. Reuben went from firstborn to a completely indistinguishable tribe. He then goes out of his way to regain the legitimacy that he feels is his due. 
And in doing this, Moses speaks a blessing that they will not be cut off from the tribes of Israel, despite all that they have done. Judah is once again called out as not only a leader, but this time as a defender of Israel. Levi gets one of the longer blessings in this list. His connection to the Urim and the Tumim are present, and it is Levi that is called out as loyal in the matters of Massa and Meribah when God contended with the people. Remember the golden calf? In verse 9, it's Levi who didn't recognize brother, parent, or child when executing judgment on the fallen in the matter with the golden calf. This was something that we talked about back in Exodus 32. It was the Levites who engaged in what we would consider to be honor killings of their family members who had participated in this idolatry. And it was this tendency towards zealous defense of the covenant that caused Hashem to choose Levi to become the tribe of priests. In verse 12, we read a blessing over Benjamin that's quite fitting. Let the beloved of Hashem dwell in safety by him, shielding him all the day as he dwells between his shoulders. And it was Benjamin that inherited the area of the land that included Jerusalem. Benjamin truly dwelt in the safety of Hashem and between his shoulders, because they dwelt on land that would become the place where his name dwelt. Next up in verse 13, Joseph is blessed. And this blessing is one of the longer blessings, but it boils down to Joseph becoming rich and powerful and ruling. And this is what happens later in Israeli history. When the kingdom splits after the death of Solomon, it was the tribe of Ephraim that was given the kingship over the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was this tribe that led Israel for several centuries until they fell to the Assyrians because they abandoned Hashem. In verse 18, we find two tribes who are blessed together, Zebulun and Issachar, the two latter-born sons of Leah. And we find in their blessing a bit of a contrast as well as a bit of congruence. First off, these tribes are contrasted with each other. Zebulun is blessed in his going out, but Issachar is blessed in his tents. Now, immediately, we should think about the comparison of Jacob and Esau. But instead of brothers who were completely different from each other and who were in conflict with each other, these are brothers who were different in personality, but were very close to each other. They shared a border in the land, and in later ages, they actually worked together. Issachar became known as a tribe of scholars who were well-studied in just about every subject, but their primary focus, according to legend, was the Torah. They were men of the tents. And Zebulun was a tribe that was constantly on the move. They became well known for being merchants and traveling long distances, and their territory included the Via Maris, which was one of the primary trade routes that connected the three continents of the ancient world. In fact, the legend goes that Zebulun used their vast wealth that was earned in trade to support Issachar in their studies. And Issachar, in turn, learned about and taught various subjects to Zebulun in order to assist them in becoming great merchants. This is truly a symbiotic give-and-take relationship described here, both parties working for the benefit of the other and both being more successful because of their mutual support. And it's this working together in symbiosis that is thought to be the receiving of this congruent blessing, the one where it draws them together. They draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Traders in rare goods in a literal sense, and scholars who could find gems in dusty tomes in a figurative sense. Verse 20 then tells with Gad, and with Gad we get a bit of a prompting to remind Gad of what they have already inherited. He chose the best of the land for himself. Remember that Gad 
was one of the two tribes who initially chose to settle on the east side of the Jordan in Bashan, and what he promised to do in order to get that land is then also recounted. He took the commander's position. And it's God who came with the elders of the people and who executed the justice of Hashem. This is a description of the role that God, a word that means troop, was to play in the conquest as the frontline soldiers in this upcoming conquest. And it was God who was the front line of defense in the Transjordan region. Next in verse 22 is Dan, and his blessing is a bit hard to parse. It says that Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. But Dan did not settle in Bashan. Bashan is in the Transjordan. Bashan is the area where Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled. Instead, Dan was far to the west on the coast of the Mediterranean in the area that we would call the Gaza Strip today, a region that was occupied by Philistines for the large part of Israeli history. And it was from this region that all of the Philistine attacks came on Israel throughout their history that we read of throughout the Bible. And Dan was the front line against them because they had not been driven out in the conquest. And as the front line and nearly constantly at a state of war, we read in the end of Judges how Dan then packs up and moves to the far north of Israel to an area that was disputed between Israel and Tyre, not far from Damascus. It was Dan's abandonment of the western front that then allowed the Philistines to attack so boldly and so far into Israel in the beginning of 1 Samuel. In fact, the attack of the Philistines of 1 Samuel went so far as to pass Shiloh, which is thought to be the reason that the tabernacle was forced to move at that time. And this was accomplished because Dan had abandoned his inheritance. And so we're left with this confusing blessing, a lion cub who leaps from Bashan. Perhaps it's speaking of Dan having the form of a lion, but not the strength or ferocity of a lion. Leaping from the Bashan, because that's where the conquest will begin. Could we understand this as saying that Dan looks fierce, but he lacks the strength and maturity to truly be fierce? And Dan's going to leap into the land from Bashan, but will be unable to completely conquer the enemy that inhabits the land. Now, frankly, who knows on this one? This is just my speculation on what's being said here based on the history of Dan. But it is interesting to consider these blessings, the blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49, the history of Dan, and then to contemplate the absence of Dan in the listing of the 144,000 of Revelation as just the first few breadcrumbs in the mystery of why Dan might be absent in that listing. Again, Naphtali is a bit hard to pin down, and that, I think, has to do with the poetic nature of this passage and translation. You see, my translation and many others translate this passage as, Naphtali will inherit the west and the south. But the west and the south of what? Naphtali was the furthest north and east in the land. I propose that there is a specific wordplay going on here in this passage, and the clue to that is the word that is translated as south. All throughout scripture, there is a word for south that is primarily used, and that is Negev. And so, when the direction of south is mentioned throughout scripture the vast majority of the time, the word that is used in the Hebrew is this word Negev, but not here. The word that's used here that's translated as south is the word Darom, and it's a word that appears only 17 times in the Hebrew Bible. Other than here, the word is found once in Job, twice in Ecclesiastes, and 13 times in the book of Ezekiel. 
and all but one of those times are in chapters 40 to 42 of Ezekiel, in the midst of the vision of the temple. All of these books are books that were written in the poetic style, and all are books that use a lot of symbolism. Added to this, the word for west is the same as the word for sea in general, yam. Well, the fact of the matter is that Naphtali was situated neither west nor south in the land of Israel. They received the northern easternmost tribal allotment. They occupied the western coast of the Sea of Galilee and further north. Instead, these words might just be used in conjunction to mean other things. You see, in at least one location, the word used here for south is used to describe the south wind. Naphtali possesses the south wind because they are the last in Israel to feel a south wind, being so far to the north. It could also have to do with trade and the trade route that connected the three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa that passed through the territory of Naphtali. Perhaps this means that Naphtali would be the last territory for all of the goods of the south that would pass through before moving on into the rest of the world. And the word used for west could simply mean that they inherited the sea, because they have the entire western shore of the Sea of Galilee, with East Manasseh on the other side of the sea. But the problem here is the age-old question. Did anyone else in the ancient world interpret this blessing in this way? Well, if we turn to the Septuagint, the translation there is exactly the same, south and west. But if we turn to Targum Jonathan, a source that I've used before, we read this. And Moshe, the prophet of the Lord, blessed the tribe of Naphtali and said, Naphtali is satisfied with favor and hath delight in the fishes of the sea which falleth within his portion, and he will be replete with blessings in the fruit of the vale of Gennesaret, which hath been given to him from the Lord. He shall inherit the water of Sopheni and the sea of Tabaria. Now, Yes, I know, that is a lot more words than the Hebrew, but we have to remember that the Targums, these Aramaic 1st, 2nd century BC to 1st and 2nd century AD translations, they're more than just simply translations. They also contain inline commentaries of what was thought of these passages at the time that they were written. And in this commentary passage, we understand that this passage to mean that Naphtali would possess the sea and all its bounty, as well as the fruits of the Vale of Gennesaret, which is near the Sea of Galilee, and was at the far southern end of the tribal allotment of Naphtali. And so with just a little bit of contemplation and research, we can at least come to some sort of reasonable solution to this problem of this blessing. Yam literally meant sea, not west, and south Maybe Gennesaret, the Vale in the south, or the tribal goods of the south that came through Naphtali. Regardless, we can't know for sure, but just some ideas to consider. And then finally, in verse 24, we read of the blessing over Asher. Asher, the most blessed of sons. Let him be accepted by his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil. Sandals are iron and bronze, and their strength is as their days. What the heck does all this mean? Accepted by his brothers? Well, Asher was the last son to be born to a concubine of Jacob. He would have occupied the position of least honor in the family, and yet Moses calls Asher the most blessed of the sons. Perhaps he does this as a reminder to the other tribes not to look on Asher with shame and let him dip his foot in oil. Well, there are some modern individuals who look at this and 
as a modern prophecy that tells of an oil strike in Israel in recent decades. The problem with this is that the ancient world had no use for black crude, and these prophecies were not meant for all time, as we caught a glimpse of when it came to Simeon. Oil to them was the bounty of olive oil, and where Asher is situated on the coast of the Mediterranean as the northwesternmost tribe, olives would have been plentiful in their land. And the bit about the shoes is somewhat lost to me, again, the shoes being some place of shame, but he's giving them some form of strength from his place of shame. Targum Jonathan says that their feet will be as strong as brass because of walking on stony rocks. Okay, whatever that means. In my estimation, this has to be an idiom of some sort that I haven't been able to completely parse. And finally, the idiom of your strength as your days is one that means that their strength will not fail them as they age. And this is the blessing over the 12 tribes of Israel. Or was it 11? Or is it 13? You know what? We'll just go with 12 and leave it at that because the rest of the Bible does it that way. Regardless, as the chapter closes, we read the final use of a word that we were introduced to last week. Yeshurun, a pet name of the people of Israel that only appears four times in Scripture and three of them are in chapters 32 and 33 of Deuteronomy. In the opening of this chapter up to verse 5, Moses was spoken of in glowing words. He was likened to a wise king that gave the people instruction as an inheritance. In fact, in verse 5, Moses is called the king of Yasharun, the king of Israel, their first king. And here at the end of verse 26, Yasharun is called to contemplate the majesty of their God, their refuge, an idea that was hammered home last week in the use of the word rock to describe God. The God who fights for Israel and defeats their enemies before they even arrive. The God who grants safety and bounty. And to close, Moses finally blesses all of Israel. Blessed are you, Israel. There is no one like you. A people who have been saved by Hashem, who acted as a sword and a shield for Israel. And victory will be yours, O Israel, as you tread down the places of other gods in your midst. And it's with this blessing that Moses, the first king of Israel, the most humble of men, the man who nearly made it, passed away as all men do. In the end, Moses was found just as guilty as the first generation. Though he had seen Hashem work in his midst, he had talked to Hashem face to face, Yet Moses, this great man, failed to do what was asked of him in a moment of crisis. He glorified himself in that pivotal moment rather than glorifying Hashem. Despite the pressure he was under, despite the frustration that he felt, despite his own deeply held grief for the passing of his sister, Moses was still held to the covenant standard. In the end, This man of promise, this best of mere mortals, was not able to live up to the glory of God. And the blessing that Moses received for all of his trouble of leading Israel for 40 years in the wilderness? Well, at least he got to see the land that was promised. He witnessed the entirety of the land from the top of Mount Nebo. Now, interesting fact, Mount Nebo was situated in a place which forced Moses to walk away from the land in order to see the land before he died on that mountain. 
And Joshua then replaced Moses as the leader of Israel, and Joshua inherited the spirit of wisdom from Moses. And since then, since the moment when this last paragraph was written, and we can know from this that Joshua was not the prophet that was likened to Moses, as many Jews will say, because since then there has not been a prophet like Moses in all of Israel, one who did great signs and wonders, one who publicly demonstrated great feats and miracles, one who spoke to Hashem face to face, one like the Son of Man, one like Yeshua. You see, as I opened with, Yeshua is the prophet who is like Moses, a man who would speak to God face to face and work great miracles for all to see, just like Moses. And yet Yeshua was greater. Yeshua was not under the curse of sin and death. Yeshua did not have a human father as Moses did. And just as with every other foreshadow of Messiah and the Tanakh, whether Moses or Joseph or David or even Melchizedek, Yeshua was greater than them all. The Torah is an amazing work that is able to impart a ton of information with a very efficient use of words. But even this Torah is nothing when compared to our Messiah, the living, breathing Word of God. And frankly, the Torah does not bring life to anyone. It is Yeshua that brings life. It is Him that is the way of life. No man comes to the Father unless they do so through Him. Rather, it is the Torah that teaches us to grow in the way of life. So we must never forget. The Torah, yes, it's amazing. But it will not and it cannot save. The Torah cannot redeem you or protect you. And with all of the many wonders of the Torah, it can itself become an idol, yet another distraction from the reality that is our God and our Savior. So I implore, please, let us please keep the Torah in its proper place. It is a book with a wealth of wisdom that is unparalleled in all of human history. But it is still just a book, nonetheless. A book cannot save you. A book cannot give you life. A book cannot redeem you. But it is a book that tells us of all of these things, and it points the way to the one who can. So in our study and contemplation of this book, let's not lose sight of this. Only Yeshua gives life. Only Yeshua saves. And without him, all of your righteous deeds done in accordance to the Torah are completely worthless. So seek life. Seek the one who gives life. Pursue life with all that is in you. Deresh Chai that you might live. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.